0: Alright, last time I was up here I was reading from Song of Solomon, so I'm really glad to draw your attention to Mark 1 this week. Um, We have Bibles coming around from the Front Lines team, if you want to put up your hand if you don't have one. If you don't have a Bible at all in your life, please take that home as our gift to you. So we're reading today from Mark 1, and it's verses 1 to 10. And that is page 836, if you've got the Church of the City Bible. All right. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, as I mentioned, uh, this is a bit unique for me. Uh, You'll probably notice very little difference, uh, to be quite honest. It's unique for me because... uh The major content of this sermon is not mine, Uh, it's Spencer's, it's his work, uh, Empowered by the Holy Spirit, that actually brought this content together. So I'm going to do my very best. I spent some time yesterday afternoon taking his notes, making them look like the way I usually put my notes together, and I'm not going to use some of the illustrations that he originally had, because they would just be illustrations I would not use, but because we're two different types of people. So that is what's going on today, and as I said, you probably will not notice uh, very much difference Um, but um, I just want to thank Spencer and give credit to Spencer where credit is due. Let's jump in. First, though, let's take a moment to pause. Uh, I want you to think about how you're feeling in this moment. Acknowledge maybe you're agitated. Maybe you're rushing in here today, feeling a bit overwhelmed. Just take a moment to pause, breathe, reflect on where you're at, and then we'll jump into our message this morning. God, it can be hard sometimes to know exactly how we're feeling. It can be hard sometimes to know what you're doing, what you're up to, and then to try to think about what's going on in our own life. That can feel extremely overwhelming. And so I pray if anyone's overwhelmed today, that you would meet them in those feelings. Reveal to them your truth, what you want to do in and through their life. Encourage them by your spirit today, we pray. We thank you. Amen. Well, we are in a series that I have titled Questions, in which we are looking at some of the largest questions that maybe you are asking, our culture is asking, not just about uh, some basic realities of Christianity, but basic realities of life in total. Uh, a few weeks ago, we began with the question of Does God exist? Are there rational reasons to consider God's existence? Uh, last week, we talked about the relationship between God and science. Maybe this past week, you focused on that a little bit. In in your life of thinking and maybe you're in the science field and you began to sort of, you know, start poking around with questions of your own for people in your field about what do you think is out there? Or, do you just trust science? Maybe that was you. Well, today we're answering the question, was Jesus really God? Was Jesus really God? Now, maybe you, for you today, you're thinking, "Well, oh, that question, like I sort of am past that question. Okay, great. But the question begs you to consider, do your neighbors, friends, and coworkers think Jesus is God? Now, I would say that for those that actually believe that Jesus existed, we're going to visit that in a moment, but for those that actually believe that Jesus did exist, there are probably a lot of wide and varying opinions on what he was like. Right? Some people would say, well, Jesus was a really good moral teacher. Jesus had great values. He's a good person to look at for that. You know, Jesus was white with a beard and long brown hair. Um, like That's not true. Like We start thinking and putting together all these things about what we imagine and what we think Jesus was like. And in many ways, what we do is we actually make him very small. Uh, you maybe have, some of you have spent time uh, in the books of Narnia uh, by C.S. Lewis, and at one point the question is asked of the Beaver uh, about Aslan. Uh, maybe some of you remember this scene from *The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe*, and they say, "What's Aslan like?" Um, and they're like, Are, "Is he you know is he scary? Are we to be af- afraid of him? Is he safe?" And the Beavers say back, "They say, well, he's certainly not safe, but he's good." And that is really, if we're going to answer the question of, is, if Jesus is really God, I mean, we have to acknowledge that, that he's, that he's, you know, not ultimately safe because he's God, but he's good. And so we're going to explore that today. Now, answering the question specifically of Jesus' divinity, the fact of whether or not he is and was God, uh, we've got to start looking a little bit broader. So what I want to do is put here on the screen here, this is something that Spencer put together, he received from the Pew Research Center, as far as what to the world, what is the world landscape as far as religion is concerned? Now some of you are maybe looking at this and are like, well what is this, what does this mean, uh, you know, bring this down and summarize it. What this is showing us is that roughly 70% of the world believes in the existence of God, and then about 16 to 17% of the world would say there is no God. But here's the thing that you have to recognize about the 70% they don't agree on defining who God is. Okay? That's the difference. Now, you might say, well, why is that so, and why is that so important? Here on the slide. For the vast majority of the world's population, the question is not, is there a God? The question is, what is God like, and how can we actually know him? Some of you are aware I'm involved at the University of Guelph on a team called the Multi-Faith Resource Team. And there's groups and there's representatives from many of the major world religions and a number of the minority world religions. And we work together uh, for a number of different reasons. And last year, we coordinated what we called uh, a places of worship tour. And what this was is that students could sign up and we'd go to a few different places of worship in the city. So we went to the Basilica downtown to explore the Catholicism. We then went to a local synagogue of the Jewish community and then we went to the mosque uh, to discover a little bit about Islam. Now, really interesting, what is the main, main and major difference between each of these world religions? Their perspective on who Jesus was. Right? The Catholics say Jesus is both God and man. The Jews say we can't truly trust a bit of who Jesus is. He's not the Messiah. And then the Muslims say he's a great prophet but he's not God himself. And so the question of who is Jesus, is Jesus really God, is a profound one if we're gonna answer the question of what is God like? And how can I actually know him? Now, I've been doing a little bit of reading in the last couple of weeks uh, on what, Charles Taylor has called the secular age, essentially the world in which we live today, and how people are building their identities. What used to historically be the case in which people would build their identities on institutions or on uh, maybe a background of religious faith, people are now building their identities on whatever they want to build it on. They're desiring to build out this individual expressive reality, this expressive individualism, and so they take a little bit of everything Right, so you might talk to somebody, and you see this, like in your life, right, where someone's like, oh, "I like a little bit of what you're saying there," or oh, "I'll adopt that worldview." Oh, I like what you're doing over there with that. Oh, I like that one. Oh, well, I talked to somebody. He's a Hindu, and he does this, and they do like this mindfulness. I'm going to grab a bit of that. Oh, and I want to go grab a bit of that. Essentially, to build out this, it's not one way of thinking about the world anymore. It could be a plethora. And so as a result, this is what that means, is that as we jump into talking today about reasons to actually consider the fact that Jesus was certainly God, that might fall upon deaf ears in the secular age in which we live. Because people might say, well, you know, that's nice, but it doesn't really work for me. Because if Jesus is really God, I'd have to take him seriously, and that's not really going to work for all the other ways that I'm building out my life. Walter Brueggemann says this in Cadences of Home about this reality in our culture he writes this, my suggestion insofar as out, our current Western dismay is a parallel to this ancient travesty is that a primary pastoral task is to voice, the felt loss, indignation, and bewilderment that are among us. For the truth is that the old settled advantage in the world upon which we have counted is over and gone, as over and gone as was Jerusalem's temple. He's speaking about the way in which people used to think about the life and world. Sadness, pain, and indignation are not appropriate responses to the loss, either then and now. Now you might say, well, what, what in the world is he saying? He's saying that we can take a moment to be sad about this reality in our culture, to identify that. People aren't thinking necessarily rationally anymore. People are willing to live with inconsistencies in their viewpoints about the world. And so it can be hard to therefore present a case for Christ or to present a case for this is why Jesus was really God and someone to say, eh, it just doesn't work for me. Because you're like, come on! It doesn't work for you? And so what Spencer really wanted from his notes at this part of the message was simply to say, like, let's just mourn that. Uh, if you've done any work with the Enneagram, he's a type four. So he really wants us just to just feel that, that it's really hard and it's really a tough reality that as we go out, as we are sent out into our neighborhoods, that it's deeply difficult to bring rational thinking into a world that doesn't care necessarily about that rational view of life. And that's what Bergman is trying to point out. But that said, prior to jumping into the reasons to believe that Jesus was both God and man, let's first deal with those people who don't believe that Jesus exists at all. Has anyone here actually ever met somebody that said, no, nah, Jesus never even existed? Has anyone ever met? Okay, so we have a couple of people that, that exist. So this is what essentially that viewpoint is. It's the Christ or it's the Jesus myth. And here's what they claim. Jesus Christ is pure myth. He's a character much like Zeus of the Greeks or Isis of the Egyptians, created by the church using pieces of other mythological stories. Uh, proponents of this view point to parallels between Jesus and primarily other mythological features. One example is a, is a mythological uh, creature and feature of a person named Horus who had 12 disciples who was crucified and who rose again. And so people say, you see, the church and people just took ideas from ancient and mythological creatures, and they created this Jesus guy. So, you know, imagine you're having a conversation with someone. They're like, well, you know, Jesus didn't actually exist. His is just like all the other stories. What are you going to say? Well, here's the major problem with this view, is that the scholarship on it is absolutely terrible, The scholarship, the rational, is actually terrible. Uh, Two of the most avid critics of the Christ myth are two scholars, one by the name of Bert Ehrman, who's actually an agnostic, and Maurice Casey, who, who is an atheist. All right? They're the biggest critics of the Christ myth. This is what Bart Ehrman said says, I should say at the outset that none of this literature is written by scholars trained in New Testament or early Christian studies teaching at the major or even minor accredited theological seminaries, divinity schools, universities, or colleges of North America or Europe or anywhere else in the world. Of the thousands of scholars of early Christianity who do teach at such schools, none of them, to my knowledge, has any doubts that Jesus existed The reality is that whatever else you may think about Jesus, he certainly did exist. And so what they say is like, listen, if people are telling you like Jesus didn't exist, that's based on like purely like awful research. It's got no backing at all. So based upon that, we can actually trust that a person by the name of Jesus, a first century Jew who had followers did in fact exist. Now the next question to answer then, well, who was he? Was he simply a man, a prophet, a good moral teacher, or was he, in fact, God? And so this morning, I'm going to present to you three reasons and then a couple of bonuses as to why we can believe and trust that Jesus was, in fact, God. The first one is this. We'll look at what the Gospels say or what other people said about Jesus. Secondly, we'll look at what Jesus said or what Jesus said about himself— Thirdly, we'll look at the reality of the resurrection. And then, as I said, if we have the time, we'll go to two bonuses. So, before we do that, though, let's start with reason number one. What the gospel say or what others said about him. Now, you might be here this morning and you say, listen, I don't trust the reliability of the, of the Gospels, so therefore I'm not going to trust you at all as you're about to say that. And I would just say, come on back on March 17th, we're going to be answering the question of the validity and the reliability of the Bible. So we'll go, come back on that one. But at least for today, consider that what is written about him might in fact be true. So what did other people say about Jesus? Let's look at some text. Uh, if you have your Bibles, you can go with me to John 1, verse 1. John 1 verse 1. Now, John, in his account of the life and ministry of Jesus, he's a bit different than some of the other gospel writers. Uh, You will know know this if you've read any of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. John is a little bit less interested at the beginning of his gospel to say the how of Jesus' birth. You get that in Matthew and in Luke. You don't get that in John. In John, instead, you get the why of Jesus' coming to this earth. And in the very beginning, verse 1, we read this about who John is connected Jesus to be. John 1 verse 1 says this, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Now this seems a bit confusing because why did he use the term word and not Jesus? The term in the Greek is logos. It's the spoken word. John, everyone agrees what John is speaking about here is Jesus himself. So what is he seeing? In the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. So here's what the gospel writers want you to know, specifically John here. The gospel writers don't just want you and I to know that Jesus was divine in some way or a God. They want you and I to know that Jesus is God, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He's Yahweh, the one true God described since the beginning of the scriptures. That's what we find in John 1, verse 1. Let's go to another text, Mark 1. This is what Karen read for us earlier. Mark 1. What do we read here about Jesus? Mark 1. Now, most scholars unanimously agree that Mark was the first gospel or the biography of Jesus to actually be written. So what he's going to say about him is going to be quite interesting. This is what he begins with. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now this is going to like totally go full Bible nerd on you, but in Mark, Mark does these very interesting literary techniques where he t- does something that scholars are called the Markan sandwich. Can everyone say the Markan sandwich? The Mark and Sandwich. And what the Mark and Sandwich is, is that Mark begins introducing someone or a story. He then, in the middle of it, inserts another story. And then at the end, he finishes the story that he began at the beginning. You know how that works like a sandwich? Like you have a bun, you have what your, you know, contents are in the middle, and then you finish out with a bun? That's what Mark's doing here, actually, at the very beginning. Notice what he does. He first introduces us to Jesus Christ. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, what is he saying here in verse 1? he's identifying Jesus as the Christ. Who is the Christ? Well, to the first readers, the first knowledge people of this, what he's indicating is Jesus is the Messiah. He is the very hope of the Jewish people. He's not just some guy. Secondly, he's the Son of God. What is he saying there? He is in the lineage of King David. So this verse, just to note, there's no direct claim about divinity yet. But Mark then begins to quote some Old Testament prophets to identify some more details about Jesus as he goes into the middle of his sandwich, and then you'll see at the end how he finishes finishes with Jesus, okay? So let's go into the next verses. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. Now, as I said, Mark here is going to quote a couple of different Old Testament prophets, Here and then in the next verse, verse 3. He's actually quoting two. In this first one, he quotes Malachi 3, verse 1. And in Malachi 3, verse 1, it says this. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Now the context of Malachi is important to understand in that Israel is doubting that their God will ever show up And here is Malachi's way of saying, I am returning to you. I am coming back. I, God, will show up again. Mark then returns to, quote, Isaiah 40, verse 3. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. This is a direct quote from Isaiah 40, verse 3, which says, A voice cries in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Verse four, Mark is now jumping back to wrap this all together, put the bow on it, help us understand why he is quoting these Old Testament prophets. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Do you see? Some of you are like, you're losing me. Here's what you need to understand. Mark is going back to show that who is about to introduce John and then Jesus are the same people that were said and prophesied about in the Old Testament. He wants you to know that. He's putting all of the pieces together for us. Now, you and I, we have access. And so we look and we like, oh, look, we can go back to Malachi. We can go back to Isaiah. These folks couldn't necessarily do it like we have the access to today. So what he is telling them is, listen, this person that I'm about to introduce you to isn't just some person, he's the one that's been prophesied and spoken about since before. All those old prophecies that you're remembering, and what you've been taught about, this is that man. So, John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Verse 5, and all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him, and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now, John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. Mm. And he preached, saying, After me comes he, who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now, friends, does this not sound a lot like what Isaiah was saying? Prepare the way of the Lord. And so are you ready to meet the one whom Mark is introducing in this way, the bottom part of our sandwich, the bottom bun, here it is, verse 9. So he begins with introducing Jesus. He completes it now by continuing about Jesus. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Now, you might be saying, okay, what are you trying to say? May there be no confusion here with what Mark is saying and who Mark is claiming Jesus to be. He's saying Jesus is Yahweh, and Yahweh is Father, Son, and Spirit. In other words, Mark is saying, Jesus is God. Do you hear that? Do you understand what he did there? Jesus is God. So here's what we like to do with Jesus. We like to put a nice little bow on him we like him to we like like what many people in our culture see it's not enough to say our culture is secularized we become secularized so who is jesus to you is he lord is he king does he have and does he allow to have in your life access to everything can he change the way you think about your identity can he change the way you think about how you're going to spend your money Because it's not enough to just say, Jesus is, you know what we do? Like, the lion imagery of like, well, you know, he's not safe, but he's good. I mean, would you hang out with a lion? Maybe you're like, well, maybe like a a tame lion, a trained lion, I might. But you know what we do with Jesus? We make him like a little purry kitten. Now, I'm not a cat guy. Some of you, though, you love your cats, right? A lot of people, like, love little kittens and, like, little puppies, but we treat them that way. And we're like, how oh, cute he is, he's so nice. And we quote and we underline all the verses that we like what Jesus says about to us in our lives. Like, oh yeah, look at that. Oh, that totally applies to the other people in my life. <laughs> Meanwhile, we forget that he wants to speak directly to us. Why? Because he has access, as Mark is claiming, Jesus is not just some purry kitten. Jesus is God. That's who we're being introduced to. Additionally, there's other claims made and said about Jesus in the Gospels, and that Jesus, there were things said about Jesus, and things were attributed to Jesus that only God could actually do. So what do I mean by that? Well, one example, Jesus turns water into wine. In John 2 verse 11, we read, this is the first of his signs, after Jesus turns water into wine, that Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, as he manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Secondly, Jesus exhibits power over creation. Luke 8, verse 25, he said to them, where is your faith? And they were afraid and they marveled and saying to one another, who then is this that he commands even the winds and the water and they obey him? Like Jesus has power over creation. Like think about that for a second. That's wild. Now if you're like, I grew up in Sunday school, okay? Now some of you maybe have fond memory of, of Sunday school. For me, this was like a felt uh, you know, remember you, I know you ever grew up with like felt boards some of you are like that totally dates you but they used to like rap, before like we had like nice PowerPoint and animated imagery from the Bible project we used felt boards and so here we have like little felt Jesus on like a felt background on the water beautiful white Jesus with like the white robe and the red sash beautifully like brown hair nice beard and so like here's Jesus on this felt board like commanding over creation you know what that does? Like, it causes you to think, like, oh, look at Jesus, cute little Jesus on the felt board. There is a storm going on, and Jesus tells the storm to stop. And it does. Thirdly, Jesus forgives people's sin. Imagine, imagine, imagine. I mean you can you can forgive somebody for like doing something wrong to you but imagine like you somebody just says to you like don't worry man like your sins are forgiven based upon my authority that'd be weird Oh okay I'm glad I've got your forgiveness for my sin like not that it had anything to do with you when we sin we sin against God so when Jesus says I forgive your sins he's claiming an identity thing here he's saying I'm God So therefore, I can forgive your sin. Which leads us to the second reason to consider the fact that Jesus may actually be God in the things that Jesus said. Now, as I said, there's many indicators in the Gospels uh, about those that are writing biographies about Jesus that he was God, but Jesus never actually comes out and says it super clearly like, hey, everybody, I just wanted you to know one thing for sure is I am God. He never says it that clearly. We have these other pieces, as what I've just said, but then he does say things that if we take seriously, we will see the fact that he does claim divinity. And so we need to ask the question, why did his closest friends and the other gospel writers and family believe that he was God if he never actually said it so clearly? So if you have your Bibles, go with me to John 8, verses 53 to 59. Because Jesus says some shocking things here. And once again, we'll go into a few of the details and then I'll bring it out at the end about what we're actually looking at. Now here in the context, Jesus is teaching, right? Jesus would often do this. He would teach. It's why many people think, oh, Jesus was just like a really great teacher. So Jesus here is teaching, but the religious Jews aren't liking the things that he's saying and particularly how he's saying the things that he's saying. And so they're asking the question of him, like, who do you think you are? You can't talk like this. Like, you can't just forgive people's sins and think that's an okay way to talk. Like, you're just some rabbi. Like, push over. Stop getting so much attention. Like, leave. You're doing terrible things. So, they say this question to Jesus in verse 53. Like, essentially, who do you think you are? Like, how dare you? Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Because Jesus starts to talk about Abraham and it confuses them. And then jump down to first 58. Look what he says. Right? Like, come on, find it. And then like highlight this, you know, leave it open all day long and keep going back to it. Look what he says. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Can you imagine that in context? People are like, who do you think you are, Jesus? You think you're greater than Abraham? Look what he just says. I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. He's claiming pre-existence to Abraham. Who does that? Right? Like, what's he saying? Well, if you go back to Exodus 3, verse 14, with Moses, God said to Moses, when Moses is asking God to define, like, who are you? God says this, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. This is God instructing Moses. I am has sent me to you. You notice the, the, the clarity? of what he's saying? He's saying, I am like I am. I am God. Jesus is claiming to not only be some deity, but to be the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the only true God. Now, you might be like, no, he's not. No, he's not. You're skeptical. But look how the people responded to what Jesus just said. Verse 59. So they picked up stones to throw at him. Oh, Let's just go back to our Jesus felt, right? Put him on that felt board, cute little Jesus. No, they picked up stones to throw at him. Like I'm, not, I'm not a violent guy at all. And I know this is like a cultural like, thing. You know, the reason is because they think he's committing blasphemy. Like he's claiming to be God. So what are they doing? They're picking up stones to throw at him. What would someone have to say to you for you to be, like, pick up a stone to throw at them? Probably something pretty significant. Yeah, that's what's going on here. He's claiming to be God. How about other examples of Jesus claiming to be God and equal to him? In John 14 and 15, we're not going to go there specifically, Jesus instructs his disciples to pray in his name. Whoa. And in John 28, Jesus accepts worship as God. So what do we? what's the point? To say that Jesus gave no indication of his divinity is reductionistic and misleading. Jesus and his first century audience knew that his claims made him either a terrible blasphemer or God in the flesh. So if we have evidence that Jesus convinced other people and what they said to think that he was God, and then secondly, that Jesus made claims that would certainly lead us to understand that he is divine, that he is God— If we can agree on those things, what about a third reason? The third reason is the resurrection. Jesus' empty tomb, the fact that we can't find his physical body So much of the case for Jesus' divinity hinges on his resurrection. Without the resurrection, a few hundred people would have been sad and believed Jesus to be a liar. But if he did come back to life, then we have to take seriously what he said and what he did. And in Mark, the first written gospel account, the first written biography of Jesus, Mark accounts that Jesus three times tells his disciples that he will die and then come back to life three days later. So imagine, okay? Imagine, like, think about someone that you follow. Maybe it's on Instagram, maybe it's on Twitter, maybe you'd consider yourself, like, following our church community, so maybe one of our pastors. You know, imagine one day I just stand up and say, hey guys, gotta tell you something. I am gonna die. I'm gonna die one day, for sure. But hey, I'm gonna die, and three days later, I'm gonna come back to life. What do you think? Now, somebody'd be like, you're you're kooky. What a weird thing that, that Matt just said this morning, eh? Well, that's exactly how the disciples respond. Like, you're ridiculous. That doesn't happen. And then he tells them three times. Three specific times. I'm going to die and then come back to life. Which would make you think that like once he dies, they'd go, hey guys, don't worry. Like three days later, he's going to come back to life. They don't believe that that's actually going to happen. Which shows you how absurd it was that Jesus actually, what Jesus was actually saying and that he would die and come back to life. So, what what am I saying here? Well, you can either think this way, as C.S. Lewis has put it. Jesus is either a liar, he's a lunatic, or he is, in fact, telling the truth about himself. He's a liar, he's lunatic, or he is, in fact, Lord. Additional proof for the resurrection, in that the first accounts and claims of the resurrection are from the letters of Paul. Now, you might be saying, well, why does that matter? If you go with me, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 to 7. This is what is said. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, most of them who are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Now you might say, Why is this important? Why should we care about what Paul said? Tim Keller puts it really beautifully here. It'll be on the screen. Paul's letter, we can go to the next slide. Paul's letter was to a church, and therefore it was a public document written to be read aloud. Paul was inviting anyone who doubted that Jesus had appeared to people after his death to go and talk to the eyewitnesses if they wished. You see that? I guess it wasn't on a a slide. My apologies. Paul's letter was to a church, and therefore it was a public document written to be read aloud. And what Paul is essentially saying here in 1 Corinthians is that he's inviting anyone who doubted that Jesus had appeared to people after his death to go and talk to eyewitnesses if they wanted to. Right? And him writing and making it a public thing, he's saying, hey... Jesus appeared to 12, and then he appeared to over 500 others. And by the way, some of those people are still alive. So if you're doubting the fact that he was alive and appeared to people, go talk to them. They're still alive. Crazy. Secondly, the gospel accounts of the resurrection, accounts of Jesus' life, were written, and they're also read like narratives. In other words, there appears to be no intent or motivation to simply convince people of false claims, the claim of resurrection. A couple examples of this is that the disciples are slow to believe in Jesus' claims both of divinity and of resurrection. Like, why would you put that in there if you're just trying to convince people of something? Secondly, Thomas actually won't believe in Jesus' resurrection until he touches and sees Jesus physically. Like he's not convinced of it until he can actually see Jesus. And then thirdly, a big reality about these Gospels is that women are the first eyewitnesses. And in that time and in that day, women were not allowed to testify in court, meaning they were unreliable witnesses. So why would you attest to women being the first to find a resurrected Jesus? You wouldn't if you were just trying to convince people. And then thirdly, of the 11 disciples who were mar- eleven of the disciples were martyred and killed on the basis of their belief that Jesus was God and that he did, in fact, come back to life. Now, what does this mean? Well, plenty of people have been duped into dying because of a lie. But who dies for something that they know is made up? Because some people claim that the disciples went and stole his body. So why would you die for him if you knew that you stole his body? Or how about James, right? You ever spent any time in the book of James in the New Testament? James was Jesus' earthly brother, and he believed that he was God. Like, some of us have siblings in the room. What would it take for you to convince your sibling that you're God? Something pretty significant. Maybe the fact you telling everybody that, you know, I'm going to die, and then three days later I'm going to come back to life. And then you actually do it. In any case, if you're not convinced... Two quick bonus reasons why Jesus must have been God. One is the life and ministry of Paul. Think about the life and ministry of Paul. But prior to Paul coming to Christ, he hated the church. He hated the church, and he was killing Christians, left, right and center. And then he comes to believe that Jesus was not only God, but that Jesus came back to life. That's a pretty powerful testimony. Let's just like a thought experiment. Who in the world right now do you think would be like the worst enemy of the gospel of Jesus Christ? You know, throw out some names. Okay. Others? ISIS. (laughs) ISIS. ISIS. For sure, killing Christians, murdering Christians, slaughtering Christians, brothers and sisters. Yes? Yes? Kim Jong-un, North Korea. Currently brothers and sisters in Christ are in concentration camps for things like owning a Bible. Who else? Some atheists, of course, yeah. Like imagine, okay, one of these folks, like Kim Jong-un, totally out of left field, Kim Jong-un meets Jesus, frees all those Christians in concentration camps, right, just starts preaching the gospel. What? How did that happen? Like in the known world at the time, that was Paul. How? Paul believed in the risen Jesus. He believed that Jesus was in fact God. Second bonus reason, the growth of the early church I mean, how can we rationally explain the growth of the Jesus movement? Because eyewitnesses were still alive, and they could attest differently to early Christian claims about Jesus' divinity and resurrection. Great persecution was taking place as Christians refused to denounce their faith in Jesus' claims and his resurrection. And then the church scattered beyond Jerusalem to share the claims of Jesus and his resurrection. I mean, how do you rationally explain the growth of the church based upon these activities of these first followers of Jesus? It's unexplainable unless Jesus was in fact God and he did come back to life. Here's what Yaroslav Pelikan writes. The oldest surviving sermon of the Christian church after the New Testament opened with the words, Brethren, we ought so to think of Jesus Christ as of God, as the judge of living and dead. And we ought not to belittle our salvation, for when we belittle him, we expect also to receive little." The oldest surviving account of the death of a Christian martyr contained the declaration, it will be impossible for us to forsake Christ or to worship any other, for him being the son of God we adore, but the martyrs we cherish. The oldest surviving pagan report about the church described Christians as gathering before sunrise and singing a hymn to Christ as to God. The oldest surviving liturgical prayer of the church was a prayer addressed to Christ, Our Lord come. Clearly, it was the message of what the church believed and taught that God was an appropriate name for Jesus Christ. The earliest accounts, the earliest accounts, Some of the things that many of us have studied in history class aren't as reliable as far as their manuscripts and fields of study to these manuscripts, to these stories that are told about Jesus, that Jesus claimed to be God and his earliest followers believed that he was and that he did in fact come back to life. So there is great, rational, legitimate reasons to consider the fact that Jesus not only existed, but that he was in fact who he said that he was. Now, as I began earlier talking about the secular age in which we live, there's a bit of an irony because I've just given examples of propositional truth, something that I said might not work in our current culture. And for that, we can't still, though, avoid the presence of Jesus in world history and the things that he said and the thing that he claimed about being God. Well, why? Is that through Jesus we see that God didn't just want us to have knowledge of him, He wanted us actually to have him. You see that? It wasn't enough that God just didn't want us to have knowledge about him. He wanted us to have himself. John 1 verse 14, the English Standard Version, says this, And the word, Jesus, became flesh, and he dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. And then secondly, if we go to Eugene Peterson in the message, I love the way he puts it. John 1 verse 14, The word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. We saw the glory with our own eyes, the one-of-a-kind glory, like father, like son, generous inside and out, true from start to finish. The word became flesh. He dwelt among us. He moved into the neighborhood. And so maybe today you're struggling with this fact of, like, was Jesus really God? My prayer for you today is that Jesus would show up to you. That he would show up maybe in a dream or with you. And he would say, listen, I am who I say that I am. I am. You can trust me. You can believe me. Because the reality is no amount of arguments... No amount of propositional truths that we give to our culture of Jesus' ex- existence will ever convince them it needs to be Jesus himself in the power of the Holy Spirit revealing himself to people so they respond in belief to who he is. You and I know this. It's far too easy not to care and to make Jesus this cuddly little kitten. But if Jesus is God, if he is in fact who he says that he is, then he's worthy of all of our worship. He's worthy of all of our praise. He's worthy of every single sacrifice. Jesus, do with my life as you see fit. And may I be obedient daily to do whatever it takes so that your name and your fame would be greater than mine. So if that's you, if you're sitting here today and you've never trusted in Jesus, I would invite you to trust today in Jesus and surrender your life over to him. To make him God, not yourself any longer, him. Turn from that belief that you are God and turn to him instead. And maybe you're a follower of Jesus today and you're identifying for yourself that you're just creating this image of Jesus that is so small. Jesus is not Lord to you. Jesus is a nice historical person that sometimes you pray to once in a while. I would challenge you and ask of you to ask the Spirit to make Jesus real to you. See, I need to surrender everything to you. Do whatever it takes for me to begin to understand who you are. And don't be surprised if that's suffering. Don't be surprised if that's suffering. Because maybe it's suffering that God needs to introduce into your life to bring you to the end of yourself so you see a need for Jesus. As I said a few weeks ago, we have such a closed perspective on suffering that as soon as there's any ounce of suffering, we ask God that it would stop. And our brothers and sisters in the Middle East, they experience daily suffering. They are born into suffering. They are born into suffering. And so, therefore, their perspective on it is different because they believe from the very beginning that God might be using it for his glory and for their good. It's not the enemy, it's the process, it's the pathway. To coming to the end of myself. So maybe you need to come to the end of yourself, and it's a daring prayer to pray, Jesus, bring me to the end of myself and do whatever it takes. But I want you to be my king. I want you to be my Lord. I want you to be my Savior. And I want to trust that you are, in fact, who you say that you are. Because if He is, it changes absolutely everything, or at least it ought to. Let's pray. So Jesus, I thank you that you came to this earth. I thank you, God, that it was not enough for you to just give us knowledge about you that you put on flesh. God put on flesh and came and he dwelt in the neighborhood. He wanted us to actually experience him. God, this claim, this claim that God came to us Many of us were raised maybe in church environments. We've just belittled the fact God came to us. Jews reject it. Muslims don't believe it's the case. Yet Christians say, Jesus is God. So God, maybe you're asking us today to consider if we believe that true, to be true that you are, in fact, God. And so you're not safe, but you're certainly good. So we invite you to do what it takes to bring us to the end of ourselves so that we might experience you fully, ultimately for your glory and for our good. In your name, amen. I invite you to stand. Uh, We have people here at the front that would love to pray with you and for you. I invite you to come forward and be prayed with.